property investing has so many parts to it. Research, negotiation, due diligence, relationships, strategies, all these great areas that we can dive into. But there's one thing that comes well before that, and it's probably, if not, the most important part of it all. That's finance. Now, when we think of property investing, we love its advantages of leverage. Imagine what a 10% deposit does plus some costs on a 500k place, just rounded up to 70 to 90k. And you're buying a 500k asset where the growth percentage is based on that 500k asset. So we all know how important leverage is. So wouldn't it be as the most powerful thing ever to then go, hey, how can I get more leverage, sensible leverage, that is, and be able to take my portfolio to more heights? So when I think about this, I thought, hey, you know what? We're in a pretty fortunate position here. I come from a banking background, and I got to soak in all the portfolio benefits, the, the mistakes, the tips during close to half a billion dollars in experience, whether it be indirectly managing lenders, directly managing lenders, bankers, to help them help customers. And this was an unbelievable experience because I got to soak in so much knowledge that many others just don't get to see. To top it off, I'm very fortunate that my wife, Lee Paliwell, my fellow co-host on The Property Nerds, is also the director of Hills Finance, a brokerage here in Sydney. So I can knock on her door next door, go, hey, have a question about finance, have some thoughts, tips about certain clients, and the synergies we have doing this is pretty powerful. So in today's episode, I've actually got a secret piece of paper, and this piece of paper has come from Lee to go, hey, here are some tips on the borrowing capacity side of things. How are we going to change it? How can we improve it? But obviously, make sure that responsible lending is the most important piece. Now, you might be wondering, why not just grab Lee on the show? Well, she's, uh, she's pretty much said, hey, look, I'm on the show with you all the time on the Property Nerds. I'll let you take care of it for the Investigate podcast. Here's the goodies. You go and spread the word. Now, it's important to note, have a chat to Lee, the team at hillsfinance.com.au if you'd like to go into these tips further for your situation. My thoughts here, I'm not a mortgage broker. I'm not a banker. Yes, I've had over half a billion in experience across all of these avenues, uh, but as I step into the world of buyer's agency, that fades a little bit more and I focus more on the research whilst the Hills Finance team and some of our other relationships are all about the finance. But I've been given the tips, I've been given the guidance, and as the host of the Investigate podcast, I'll be sharing this with you so you can take your portfolio to new heights. But of course, chat to your banker or the team at Hills Finance to talk about your portfolio, scaling it, and even just making sure it's optimized for the best it can be. Let's go and talk about the five tips to increase your borrowing capacity. Let's do it. Five finance tips to boost your property portfolio delivered straight from the team at Hills Finance. So thank you for sharing that. If you'd like to reach out to them, just a reminder, it's hillsfinance.com.au. And we work very closely with them at Investicate to be able to scale client portfolios. So these five tips have come straight from them and they are rippers and they're going to help you being able to understand the world of finance, but also scale the portfolio further. So let's jump into tip number one. Limits are liabilities, not debts. Very interesting, right? 
Now, what does that mean? Let's, for example, take a credit card, an overdraft, or things like that. If you've got a limit of, say, $10,000 on one of those things, the bank is assuming that you are fully drawing down your credit card. And so that means that whether you pay it all off really quickly, whether you keep two or 3K debt on there, whether you keep 9K or 8K debt on there, the bank is assuming a certain percentage of the whole limit is being used to protect themselves and protect you from a borrowing capacity perspective because technically you've got availability to that. Now, what, what that means is if you're looking for that boost in borrowing capacity, sometimes bankers and brokers don't want to tell you the full news, meaning they'll tell you your borrowing capacity based on what you have. Strategic bankers and, and brokers will go, hey, based on what you have, this is it. But if you were to change your limits here, close that credit card, this is what it could be. And the differences are decent. Like, you know, we see the most common credit card limits is that 8 to 12K when the Hills Finance team is working with clients on a per card basis. But as you know, if you're a points fiend like me, you start popping up a card here, a card here, just so you can enjoy that super discounted or almost free business class trip. Uh, then obviously those limits can rack up and, and grow pretty quickly. So I'd encourage you to review those limits, see if you can consolidate some, make them lower and go from there. Now, I know one frustrating part of limits and cards is that sometimes certain cards have an actual minimum limit. I noticed this thing with a few of the banks, like to get a certain tier of card, you don't want to lose those benefits. They might have a 10, 12 or 15K minimum. and You can't decrease it below that. So you change the tier. So it becomes frustrating. The second thing around those limits is that you have all these direct debits that you manage perfectly, and that also becomes a mission for you to start to change. But the truth is, if you're here to scale your portfolio, those limits can hold you back. And by decreasing them or eliminating them, eliminating them, you'll be able to you know, improve your borrowing capacity. So that's tip number one. Let's go to tip number two, loan terms. So you might go, hey, hold on a minute, Arjun, I thought the bank wants me to finish my loan quickly. Well, that'd be great for you, reduce debt, reduce interest calculations long-term, awesome. But different products have different loan terms. Let's look at car loans. You know, they can range from three, four, five, six, and the rare occasion, even seven. Now, you might think it's a small amount of debt, call it 20 to 50 or even 100K. But when you have low loan terms, those repayments are high. And when those repayments are high, the borrowing capacity is based on those repayments, and in some cases, even a loading. Now, what does a loading mean? Let's just use a buffer, 20% as an example, meaning if you have a $1,000 per month repayment, you might go, hey, I'm easily affording this, but now the bank goes, well, we might say your repayment's 1200 just to be conservative and have that 20% loading. So what you should consider is find that balance between loan terms and paying things down versus the actual interest calculation long-term, but also the lower turning to higher loan terms to improve your borrowing capacity. Because immediately, let's just hypothetically say for simple numbers, that your $1,000 per month repayment, the loan term is now doubled, and as a result of repayment drops to 500, that could be a big amount of borrowing capacity changes in the grand scheme of things. So what can you do? Review certain loans, maybe restructure them. Second, you can also look at your properties. If you've had certain properties for some time, it's obviously natural that their loan term is reducing because you've owned it for some time and maybe not refinanced them. 
So on many occasions, people do something called recasting, making their current 25-year home loan remaining and taking it out to 30 years. And so this recasting, you've got to be careful around, hey, now my repayments are lower, but my principal might be coming down, you know, at a lower pace. But then at the same time, that will mean more interest over the long term. So you've just got to be mindful of that and think of your situation with, I'm going to be paying interest more because the loan's over a longer term, but the benefit being I might acquire that next asset because my borrowing capacity is improved from refinancing my loan to another 30-year term. It's a very common practice brokers consider as part of scaling a portfolio to get that little bit extra because if you've got three or four properties and you bring them all back to that 30-year, then it makes a big difference. And so consider loan terms, even commercial. Some commercials start from 15 years, even five to 10 years, and then go up to 20, 25 years. I've seen people also consider restructuring commercial loans to 30-year terms by using their you know, home equity and other things like that. But well, as always, chat to your account about what's suitable for you, but just gives you some insights into the world of loan terms to improve your borrowing capacity. Tip number three, different banks, different results. Now, why is that the case? Well, firstly, banks range on their risk appetite. And that is them saying, we want to be picky and choosy on the type of customer we want. We want to pick and choose the type of quality of loans or potential risk of loans of defaulting. And we want to keep that to a certain level. And it's essentially this balancing between getting more deals to their book versus getting deals that they feel high confidence in to reduce delinquency, default or issues of paying. Because that creates a whole other issue for banks. And that means they have to have more people chasing up, more people managing. And then it becomes more expensive with different teams being set up and departments set up to be able to do so. And also from a risk management perspective, that's the, that's the key thing really. Now, policies. When it comes to policies, assessment rates are the first one. Assessment rates are a measure that the bank says, hey, let's just say we're all on an even playing field of say 5%. But we want to assess you at 8.5 just to make sure if things change, you can cover it. Someone else might go 8%. Someone else might go 9%. So these are one core thing. Another thing with policies is they might say, hey, we want to look at your income differently. Some banks may say you've earned bonus consistently for this one year or commission for this one year, and we're happy to use it. Other banks may say we want two years. And the same thing goes with those who are self-employed one year, two years, and sometimes a bit of a hybrid. So if you go deeper into income usage, some banks might do something called shading. Hey, we know you made 20K in bonuses this year, but we only want to take 80% of that for your calculations of income just because it can go ups and downs in bonuses. So to protect ourselves, we might take 16,000. The same could be done with overtime, allowances, and all these different income usages. Another common one is rental income. What if some banks say, hey, we've already factored in your bills of your property in our calculations, so we're going to take 90% or even give you back 100% of your rental income. But others might go, we'll only accept 70 to 80% because we don't ask you for all the details of council rates, vacancy, maintenance bills. So we're just going to say 70% of your rental can be used for this application, and that might change your application considerably. considerably. Other banks may also look at the policies in the way of how they look at your debts. 
some may say, well, your interest only amount is the repayment you're on. And for that reason, we're going to only service you based on the repayment you're on. Now, if you read between the lines there, an interest only repayment is very low in comparison to a principal. So this now boosts your borrowing capacity substantially because the banks are thinking you're on interest only and assuming that because that's what it is at the moment of time. Whereas other banks might say, we get that you're on an interest only, your loan term is 30 years and your interest only term is for five years. As a result though, we're now going to say that we want to see if you can pay a loan on principal and interest on 25 years, not 30 because eventually that interest only will end and you'll be on 25. And so we wanna make sure you can handle that. And so now you might think, yay, my repayments are lower, interest only, that's great. But then your servicing for borrowing capacity reduces substantially because the bank might consider your loan based on a 25 year principal and interest versus a 30. Have a few properties, now that's that across multiple. So this is the world of policies and why you need a mortgage broker on your team. Because a mortgage broker is going to sift through the different banks. Think of your goals, objectives, risk profile, buffers, and what might be suitable, offer you different choices, two, three, four different choices to make the right recommendation so you can then make an informed decision about which bank suits you best. Some may win on the interest rate game, some on the fees, but if you're truly focused on a scalable portfolio, then you might be more focused on the borrowing capacity with the right buffers. So that's gonna be important to consider. Another thing of different bank, different results is valuations. Now valuations may not be the outcome to increase borrowing capacity, but the purpose of valuations is they unlock more usable borrowing capacity. Meaning, let's just say your borrowing capacity is quite healthy. You're looking at a bank valuation and with one bank it might be 500K, but another bank it might be 525 and another at 530. Now, when that bank with a little bit more is available, if you've got the capacity to service that, you might have more equity now to go towards your next property. Whereas with that one bank at 500, let's just say you could borrow up the deposit from them, but if they're not going to give you enough equity, you might not be able to unlock it. But again, it shows the importance of having a savvy investment broker on your team who can order valuations. Now, I want to pause and say something very exciting and important as part of being a client at Investicate. At Investicate, we conduct annual reviews with our clients and do valuations for them. We partner up with their broker or work with our uh, partner company, hillsfinance.com.au. And when we partner up with, say, their brokers, we instruct them on comparable analysis based on what we're seeing so they can order three to four valuations. Now imagine that tip comes to play, tip comes to life and you're able to then go, okay, well, I'm now going to look at the bank valuation across three or four banks. One comes out a little bit higher and more closer to your assessment and you're now able to scale that portfolio further. Imagine the power of having a buyer's agency team on your side that is so proactive to ensure that your goals are met through multiple valuations, not just what their thoughts are on the property market. And so from that perspective, if you'd like to chat to the team, jump on investikit.com.au. We'll be able to have a free consultation just to make sure that we're right fit, tell you more about our services, learn more about you, 
and see if we can offer you that lifelong type of service around portfolio scaling. So that is the different banks and different results. Now, on that, I've mentioned tiers of banks, the risk appetite, the different policies, how they look at assessment rates, income usage, how they look at your debt. There's one more piece I haven't touched on. And this one is moving a lot because that's another thing. When you think a bank's got a policy, they can go and change it. So just be mindful of that and keep your finger on the pulse with chats with your banker around your next move. So the next one is your structures. This is still tip number three. Your structures under the different banks and different results can also make a difference. Some banks treat different trusts and entities as their own isolated entities and don't want to consider other entities as long as they're making a profit. So from that perspective, if you've got an accountant or someone else confirming that, hey, these couple of entities are profitable, some banks may say, well, okay, we'll ignore that then. We'll just focus on this trust that you're borrowing in. So as a result, they're excluding debts from your calculations, not to be evading or any, you know, going past certain debts, but you're doing it because that's profitable. And so, hey, bank, this is okay. I want to focus on this trust and borrowing through that. And so personal trusts, unit, discretionary, all these things, your accountant can firstly see if they're the right thing to set up. But then your broker can also look at that and say, well, it works better with this bank and not so good with this bank. It's very important to note that these policies change. So never set up a trust purely for the policy. Set it up for a more holistic view. My accountant confirms my long-term goals make sense here. My land tax thresholds make sense here. My portfolio and where it's at and the different states I'm at make sense here. And now I also want to look at the borrowing capacity upsides depending on which bank. If you go and set up all these complex structures, multiple properties in the hope that, hey, I'm just doing it for a borrowing capacity perspective, all it takes is one policy change across the very few banks that offer these different solutions and you've set yourself up in land tax, costs of management, costs of setup, depending on you know, how this all goes, this could cost more than it earns. And what happens if the property is not positive geared and you've just got losses sitting in these trusts for a long time? So I think from this perspective, different structures can unlock different outcomes of borrowing capacity, but make sure you've got a holistic view on it with your professionals to ensure you're going about it the right way. Now that's different banks and different results. Let's move on to tip number four. And this is a big part that we see. I want you to imagine for a second, you go to the bank. Hey bank, what's my borrowing capacity? Or your broker. And they say, look, 800K. You then buy a property for six to 800 and you stop there. In your mind, you think, I haven't had any pay rises. I haven't had any, you know, different banks I'm looking at. That was the bank that said that was the best I could borrow. And that's it. You sit quiet. You don't do anything until you think something substantial changes. This is a big issue. What happens is that when you do an application, The bank doesn't make your borrowing capacity on your next three properties. They make it based on what's in front of you right now. So if you did buy that, say, 600K property on an 800K max borrowing capacity, and you think mentally there's 200 left, I can't come back because I've only got 200 left. This is a mistake I see. When you come back to the bank next time around, you've got three things to consider. 
Number one, the bank considers the negative gearing or gearing overall calculations on your current property that you bought for 600 as an investment. Secondly, the bank considers the proposed rent of your next investment that you're thinking of. And third, the bank considers the gearing of the next investment that you're considering. In simple terms, this means that 200 that you thought you had may not be what you have. You may have more because you're coming back for the next rental income to get the next property. Now, it's not a perfect equation because bank policies of how much rent they take, how they look at your debt and assessment rates, and also how they look at um, your loading of the current debts, all those things I explained earlier. But what this will do is it gives you a small second wind. That 200 could turn into 400 as an example. And that 400 now could be the next property. Now, you can't keep unlocking a new 400 every time you come up with rents. But let's just stay at 400 for a second. The next time it might be 360, 300, 250. You're not left with that initial 200 and that's it. Each time you come back with a new property and new rents is a new calculation. So don't fall to the trap of being paralyzed and thinking, I don't have any other things I should do now because I've used 600 to the 800. There's nothing left. You should come back to that broker and go, I'm thinking of buying another 400K property. I know we had 200 left on the last one. Could you see if I could service that? The first question a good broker will ask you is going, hey, what sort of rent do you reckon you can get on this? And this is where it leads to the next point on proposed rental yields. Are you going to buy a property with a 3% yield, 4%, 5%, 5.5, or heck, even 6%. Now, if these yields increase, guess what increases? Your proposed yield and your proposed borrowing capacity. That 200 gap on no new property, let's just say it jumps to 400. What if it now jumps to 450, 475, 480? These small increments all add up to unlock a subsequent purchase. And this is where you control two things. Bring the next deal back to the bank. Second is play the capacity at different yields by asking them the question, where does it move as I give you these different yield numbers? And you can then set a yield target for your acquisition to get that next property. Then you come back again. Each time you're coming back, you'll have less. But the number is still forward moving every time you come back with proposed yield. The key is at some point it goes to negative moving and at some point it moves to circumstances and changes that you need to display outside of the yield, more so to do with your personal incomes. But this is important because many people think they're done. But if you combine the first three tips, bringing forward the next property, showing the yields, testing them at different percentages, what minimum yield will you need? You've got a target for the next and you unlock that one extra purchase, sometimes even two. The fifth and final one, this is the one that no one likes to hear, but it's the truth. There is nothing more that can change your borrowing capacity in a positive shift than income and expenses. And the truth is, I am a big believer, and I've said this many times over, that property investing and success in investing, especially when the tool of leverage is being considered, is a very holistic you know, requirement of success that's needed across all facets of life. You've got to think wealthier. 
You've got to act wealthier. And by wealthy, I don't mean flashy. By acting wealthy, I mean how you spend. You've got to think wealthier about what you want to achieve, where you think you're able to go, where you think you want to go. You've got to display it in your career. Don't expect massive property investing just to exit the job that you hate. You're going to hate the results when you realize that it's a 15 to 20 year plan to achieve that level of success. And all of a sudden, grinding 15 to 20 years in a place that you hate, say the job you're in, to just use property investing to pull you out of it is a big problem. Because guess what? You hate the 15 to 20 year timeline. You try and bring it forward. And in comes the guru who wants to make it all happen in five years. And you get suckered in into things that just don't work, aren't proven, high risk, more mistakes. This is where it all goes wrong. Then you get scarred, maybe on one, maybe on two deals, and you get paralyzed and never want a property invest again. You're back to the drawing board on a job you hate, and you're trying to hunt for the next opportunity. Might be the next course. Might be the next webinar. Might be the next download this ebook and this solves your life. This is a big problem and property investors need to get past this. And so I think of a holistic life to consider where am I in my career? Does it have the potential to rise? Are there people in the top of my career earning what I want to earn to unlock what I want to go and achieve? Are there other careers that help me? Yes, income, money, all these things are not everything. That's why I say income and expenses. You know, someone on a high income may not be able to borrow someone on the lower one, but manages their expenses well, but you need both managed to get the best results. So I implore you to consider, maybe it's a change in company. Maybe it's a hustle and grind. Learn, mentors, and grow within your company. Maybe it's starting a business. Maybe it's opening up another business. All I can say is that my personal journey and income has drastically changed from when I first moved to Australia in 2010. Coming over from New Zealand, 2010, 11, 12, every year things were changing. Now, did I start from the top? No, we all had to start somewhere. My first job was 38 to 42K, I believe. I'm not saying that, you know, that job is, is a bad job, but it's a starting income. And if it's a starting income, I cannot expect to sit on that to create a scalable portfolio. We need to look at things outside of the what asset I buy and what I do and really start getting deep on personal accountability, mentors, career growth, career planning, short, medium, long-term plans, skill sets, building skills, building networks, relationships, who you know, what you know, where you go, how long you stay, how far up an organization you go. There's so many facets to this how you control your spending. But the big thing is, this is the biggest Dow changer. Very few people have prolific portfolios without higher incomes. Very few people have prolific portfolios without time. And so if you're willing to give up, no, just don't, don't see myself earning it. Don't want to go up in that job. My career doesn't offer that. No, 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 no. Arjun, that's just not possible. Okay, cool. Just play the time game. That's fine. We've seen many examples of lower income earners, but playing the time game, meaning 15, 20, 25 years, 
the assets are building, the rents are rising, you're saving with great habits. Just don't expect to not move the income dial and then suddenly have the time become much sooner. These are important things to consider. And unfortunately, very few in the property industry want to tell you the truth around the income piece. Investing by self, investing by other, with others, all these different things could be considerations. But these are five core tips from the team at hillsfinance.com.au. Next time, Lee, I'm dragging you on. I know you're with me on the Property Nerds podcast every month. But now on the Investigate podcast, my goal is to get you on here as well because these t- tips are brilliant and thank you for sharing that. If you'd like to chat to the team, hillsfinance.com.au, go have a chat to Lee and the team there. They'll help you with implementing these five tips. The tip number one, limits are liabilities, not debts. Number two, loan terms. Number three, different banks, different results. Number four, proposed rental yields. And number five, income and expenses. The big whammy at the end. That's it for me. Another episode here at the Investikit podcast, helping you build scalable portfolios and gaining an edge in the market through our industry-leading research. You can reach out to the team because we want to think deeper, not just on the property buying, but think holistically and implement strategies with the right team around you at investikit.com.au and reach out for a free consultation. Spots are limited. Take care.